You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host, me, Dr. Bahija Raimi Abraham. Hello, welcome back to Monday Science. Happy Monday, happy day, happy whatever, happy start of the day or start of the episode. Um, just a reminder that you can connect with us via our website, mondaysciencepodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can sign, uh, connect with us on social media at Monday Science underscore or at Monday Science, which is on. And you can DM us any questions through um, our social media, as well as send an email if you wish uh, at info at mondayscience.com. So on to today's episode. Well, let's start off with our Monday Science Person of the Week. And um, this goes to a former guest on Monday Science, Dr. Zoe Ayres, uh, who is an analytical research and development scientist, but is also a mental health advocate driving for change. Zoe is absolutely amazing. And as I mentioned, she was the guest on the podcast last year, episodes 21 and 22, where we discussed all things academic mental health. The reason why Zoe is getting the award for this week, and to be honest, she'll be getting the award every week, is just really how really just is so supportive of trying to drive change around academic mental health. Um, of increasing awareness, being an advocate for change, creating platforms for people to have these very, you know, difficult conversations around academic mental health, all around amazing. Um, so yeah, I just really wanted to honour her today in particular, um, especially in this time where a lot of people have been struggling with their mental health because of uh, COVID-19 and the impact of the lockdown. And Zoe has been creating content for PhD researchers, postdocs, professional services, scientists, professors, and everybody, and, and really offering that support. So please do um, check her out. You can find her, her website is zjairs.com. Um, and you can also find her on uh, Twitter at zjairs. On to today's episode. So um, I read an article in the BMJ. Um, it was published last year, December December 11th last year, titled COVID-19, many poor countries will see almost no vaccine next year, aid group warns. So just to give some context, um, apparently at least 90% of people in 67 low and middle income countries stand little chance of getting vaccinated against COVID-19 in 2021 because wealthy nations have reserved more than they need and developers will not share their intellectual property. Rich countries with only 14% of the world's population have bought up to 53% of the eight most promising vaccine, vaccines at the time, which includes all of the Moderna vaccine doses expected to be produced over the next year, and 96% of the Pfizer vaccine. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Mogar Kamal Yani, who is a global health and access to medicines consultant who works with the People's Vaccine Alliance. The People's Vaccine Alliance is a coalition of organizations and activists united under a common aim of campaigning for a people's vaccine for COVID-19. Hello, welcome back to Monday Science and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, today we have the amazing Moga Kamal Yani. Hello Moga, how are you? Hi, thank you. <laughs> yeah, how, nice how are you doing? 
Oh, thank you so much. And really grateful to have you on the uh, Monday Science, Monday Science, sorry. <laughs> um, so do you mind, let's start off with, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. My goodness. Um, so my background, um, I'm Egyptian. Um, I'm trained doctor, basically uh, GP, and I worked as a GP in my country and in other countries. But then I moved to work on um, health programs and their health policy in a number of countries. And I joined Oxfam here um, after going around in many countries and, um, and have been working on global health policy and programming um, for many, many, many years. Now I'm a freelance consultant. So at the moment I am um, um, senior um, policy advisor for the People's Vaccine uh, Alliance and consultant to UNAIDS. Amazing. And, and we're going to be talking more about uh, the People's Vaccine Alliance. And it's really um, just so important. And I'm so happy to have you here for the conversation we're about to have. Um, before we get onto the more serious topics, there's a couple of questions that I like to ask. Uh, firstly, what is your favorite song at the moment? Wow. Um, <laughs> my favorite song is uh, an Arabic song, Egyptian song. Nice, yeah. <laughs> please, please tell us and who's the artist and the name as well. Uh, the artist is uh, a man called uh, Abdul Halim Hafiz. Who, I mean, he's he's all. I mean, he's he's, he's dead now, but his his music is really his songs are really really uh, uh, lovely. And uh, the song I love is called, it's called in, in Arabic, it's called Qariat al-Fingan, basically the, the fortune teller, that this lady that looks at your, uh, when you finish your coffee cup, it, you, you put it upside down and then she, uh, she will read your, your future. Uh, and it's a, a famous po poem about uh, this, this lady, this fortune teller. Who was telling him about his love and um, the future of his love? It's just a lovely song. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much. And can you recommend a film or and or a book for our listeners? Something that you've read, maybe something you've watched, or a documentary that has has had an impact or profound effect on you? Oh my goodness! I tell you what, had a, I mean, what one one book and film? I normally, if I read a book and I love it, it's very difficult for me to watch the film because I think they ruined the book. But the one that I felt that it was the film although the film didn't it stuck to the to the to the book actually but anyway it added to it particularly the scenery it was a constant gardener which was about um, uh, some experiments that pharmaceutical companies were doing in Kenya so the film had fantastic views from Kenya and excellent uh, acting the book is absolutely brilliant so but yeah, these are, are really love, but they 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 didn't shock me because I work on pharma, so I know what's going on. Um, the one that really shocked me was um, a video by uh, let me remember her name, uh, a Canadian um, lady, um, which is called the shock therapy. The shock the shock therapy. Okay. I'll find <laughs> and yeah. it is about basically what um, linking the the new liberal thinking, you know, with uh, some U.S. people, some uh, what happened in Latin America, what happens in Iraq. It really is incredible. 
Amazing um, recommendations. Thank you so much. I, I've, I've not heard of either of those books or films, so I'll definitely be looking into that. Thank you so much. Um, so I really wanted to uh, get you on the, on the so, podcast. Sorry, one minute, one minute. It's called The Shock Doctrine. The and Shock Doctrine. And it's a book and a video by Naomi Klein. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> so, thank you. Heard about the People's Vaccine Alliance through many different sort of um, searches online wanting to talk about health inequalities on the distribution of uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And so I guess that's really setting the scene for what we're going to talk about today. And so from my understanding of inequalities, um, it's that it consists of two main components, but please, you're going to correct me because I'm probably wrong. <laughs> but from my understanding, it's um, there's the uh, inequalities that um, are, occur between groups within the same society and inequalities that occur between nations. Um, so please, could you explain the actual term health inequalities and why do, uh, why in general do health inequalities occur within a society as well as between nations? You, you're right. So inequality can happen between any groups or any individuals. So there's inequality between men and women. There's inequality between uh, people who have particular um, illnesses, like people who have uh, were living with HIV, for example, um, there is inequality between their access to lots of things and um, other people in the same society. Um, and at the height of the HIV, it was horrible, horrible inequality um, because of also the stigma, which hopefully is decreasing now. Um, so there is that, there's inequality, there's income inequality between countries and within countries, you know, uh, I mean, you know, here, here in the UK, there's people who, uh, while you have the, the uh, uh, billionaires whose um, wealth has increased tremendously, actually in all the world, not just in the UK, you have people in rich in a rich country like the UK who are dependent on food bank. I mean, that is just incredibly. Um, how come if you are a politician? I mean, if I was a politician, I couldn't sleep to feeling that uh, that is happening in my country. Um, in a rich country, I mean, understandable, I guess, in a poor country that some people. It's not good. It's not just just. It shouldn't happen. But if you say the country is poor, but here we're not poor here. So it's this is, and it is also that it's globally people are losing uh, their jobs, they're losing their livelihood, they're losing their loved ones, they're losing their breadwinners, um, and they're losing money. Obviously, um, that's a majority of the world population. And then you've got a bunch of people who are making more money. I mean, just huge inequalities that is, that is a result of, and is leading to huge injustice. It's really interesting you say that because I think, I, I don't know if you have the same opinion, but I feel like 2020 highlighted the inequalities in society and the fact that, um, as you said, you know, there are people who've lost their jobs, there are people who've had to turn to food banks. I think there was even a situation where there were, uh, the food banks were running out of food because there was so yeah. much need. Um, I'd like to discuss the, because bringing it to focus, I'd like to discuss the historical issue of access to medicines and access to vaccines at a global level. So could you please just give us an explanation or just why uh, there is this commonality of health inequalities and access to medicines, as well as health inequalities and access to vaccines? Okay, I don't know where to start, it's a big issue. <laughs> 
But yeah. um, in one one thing is that globally in all countries, health is not a real priority for countries. The priority is this, I don't know, security um, and the economy, whatever, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And then comes health at, at, the, at the end or or with other things at the very end, health, environment, you know, climate, all that. They, they, they used to come at the end um, of the, the priorities, which means at the end of funding. So that's one thing. There is, you can't provide health service on the cheap. This is just a, 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 a mistake. The, the other thing is that there is many, um, uh, so funding health service and, the, and, and then the, there is the way you look at health. Do you look at health as a right, a human right? And therefore people are citizen, enti citizens entitled to that right. That will lead you to go for things like the NHS in the, in the UK publicly funded, publicly delivered. That's because we are considered a citizen and have rights. That's of course being uh, dismantled now. Or you look at people as, uh, you look at health as, or healthcare as um, some goods so that we are customers. Hmm. And if we are customers, then you privatize it. Any, anybody can deliver this, this good and it assumes as if we have the choice as consumers. We have the choice, which is rubbish. Because if you have the, you may well, you may have the choice to, to buy this uh, uh, this song or the other, you know, to buy this book or the other, this car or the other, or not to buy them at all. That's a choice. But you don't have a choice as a patient or as somebody who requires healthcare. You don't have a choice of saying, oh right, you know, I'm going to take that medicine and not that one. Oh, my choice is I think I have that disease and not that one. Or my choice is that there is this public health measures that the whole country has to have, like a vaccine. A vaccine is not a personal issue, so it's a, it's a societal issue. So it's, it's, you don't have that. So it can be used as a healthcare, cannot be provided as, as a good, as any good. It is a public good, but it's not any, um, anything that you can buy and sell. So that's another problem that many countries have. I was actually on a, 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 a Zoom um, just a few minutes ago, and there was this professor from the US, and he was talking about the commercialization of healthcare in the US and how they were just, when they faced with COVID, he was talking, even despite Obamacare, there is 31 million people who don't have health insurance. He was saying that millions of people don't have access to primary care so therefore uh, because the government decreased funding for primary care and it's been kind of like a, um, a, you know looking for all these privatized um, contracting to companies they don't have a system of delivering medicine delivering the vaccine so it, it was just it was really scary the picture there so that's one thing about the you know why there are inequality of healthcare. So this, the, you know, that if you are rich, you can access the best five-star um, healthcare, private healthcare if you want. Um, if you are less rich, and then you have something like, you know, um, cancer or any other chronic disease or any problem disease like that, you know, you might sell your house in order to, 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 to cover your costs. So it's, um, which increases the inequality more and more. Come to medicine. So 
medicines in a way is part of that, but also there is other part of it, which is uh, the setting up of the World Trade Organization and the agreement on intellectual property rights that the, the, the health research has become um, like dictated by the market. If, the, if, the, if a company feels lot like they, if they produce this medicine or that vaccine, there is a big market for it and they can make money, they will invest in it. If they can, and they can produce it and dictate the price. If there isn't money, you know, money to be made, they wouldn't invest. That's why things like sleeping sickness, malaria, TB, even, um, are, don't, we don't have really um, good curative medicines yet because they, they just don't make money. Ebola for the matter, they don't make money. And that's um, the, the problem on monopoly on research, monopoly on price and monopoly on the whole um, medicine market. When I say medicine, it includes vaccines as well. COVID was like HIV in a sense that before HIV, we knew there was gender violence. We knew there was inequality between men and women. We knew that there's poor people. We knew, you know, we knew that people would sleep without food. We knew all these things. But nobody, we knew that health service needs a lot of investment, that the medicine needs a way of investment that will produce medicines for people. All that was kind of like common sense, public knowledge everywhere all over the world. What HIV did is got this huge lens and put it on top of on, on top of that. So nobody can say, oh, we don't know that there's gender violence, for example, gender-based violence. Or we don't know there is not enough medicine for people. COVID did exactly the same. COVID put the big lens on inequality, put a big lens on lack of interest in health system and lack of public funding for health system, and put a, uh, put a big lens on the, the, the way uh, medicine and vaccines have been researched and developed. And if you look, what, you know, and I was following COVID from the beginning before it, 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 it got a name even. And I was watching pharmaceutical companies, what they're going to do, are they going to produce anything? And two things made companies run to do the vaccine. Well, three things really. The first one is that there was already research in universities. So these universities have been funded by the public first for many, many years. The Oxford vaccine is based on the research they have done, they have been doing on SARS. So as we're talking since 2002 and 2003, where they've been researching that. The same with the Pfizer uh, um, BioNTech um, vaccine and the others, they're all the same. So that's the first thing, but that's not good enough for, for, for the companies. What the market bit of the company is that um, the governments, first the governments poured money, literally poured money on companies. The Moderna vaccine was totally funded by the, the US government. So totally. So they really poured money. So the, the pharmaceutical companies could see the money. They already got the scientific research from universities. And on top of that, scientists said that this virus is not going to go like SARS. It's actually going to stay with us. And therefore, it's probably going to be like flu. Every year, you will need vaccine. The advantage over the flu, the flu vaccine goes to specific people who are at risk. 
this one will go to everybody because we would need health immunity. So fantastic market where you can make money. And that's how they, they went into it. So that's why we have inequality because you, you left governments left decisions about research, supply, production, and price in the hands of, of pharmaceutical companies. It's, thank you for that overview, uh, Magar, because it's so, I think working in healthcare, you, I mean, I started my healthcare journey as a pharmacist and, you know, I remember at university being very passionate about, you know, helping people and ah, I'm so impassionate. Yes. Um, and then I think you then leave the sort of comfort of university and then you enter real life practice. And then in my case, obviously, you're going down a drug development route and everything. And you then start to realize that healthcare is a business. You know, it, it, it is a business to some extent. But and, and when you were talking about this, the things that people don't realize is the fact that healthcare, unfortunately, tends to be lower down on the priorities, yeah. as you highlighted. And and it's so it's interesting because health, you know, as I say, health is wealth, right? You know, we we need to be alive to do what we need to do in the world and contribute. And I and and in discussions I've had um, talking about malaria actually and and sort of the challenges there as uh, in terms of therapeutics and the fact that it's just still something that is an, a, a burden and an issue globally, is how does how does one turn the um, the value of health and add sort of an economical twist to it, which is if you have an unhealthy population, then you have a lower workforce. You know, is that the way, because it almost seems as if people don't, or I say people, so I'm sort of saying that in a very uh, callous way, but it almost seems that health and the impact that has on the economy, it seems to be two very separate things. And I don't know whether maybe COVID highlighted that if you have an unhealthy population, then it means people can't work. You know, and I don't know if that's what, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, yeah, I mean, now um, politicians have talked about health security. Um, so it did reach the, the security um, uh, issue. But whether they would really learn the lessons or not, I don't know. Because we, we didn't learn the lessons from Ebola. And Ebola was a big wake-up call. Because when Ebola came, it was clear all these countries don't have a functioning health system. So it's quite clear that health system is an issue. The second thing is, <laughs> particularly when um, there was a couple of people um, uh, who were uh, basically, there was an, an American who got infected, uh, I, I think in Liberia, I can't remember, in one of the three countries anyway, and had to go home. And they suddenly realized, oh my God, you know, how do we stop how this do we, yeah. coming home? And we don't have a vaccine and we don't have a medicine. Yeah. And, so, and, mm -hmm. But but still, okay, so here's a lesson. Are we going to invest in health system? Not really. We didn't notice a big investment in any country. In fact, we've seen cuts in Britain in the health system. I mean, it's being, the, the NHS is being cut for the last 10 years, and that's one country, one rich country. Mm. Um, and we haven't seen any change in the, um, how to research medicine or um, how to, you know, I, I um, look at um, developing new medicines and new vaccines. And actually what was developed for Ebola, uh, there was uh, one vaccine, we have a vaccine for, uh, in, for Ebola now, and that was developed by universities 
funding from the Canadian government. Then it was given to a small biotech, which basically slept on it because they couldn't see a market. And then um, it would took a lot, of, and they couldn't make it. So it took a lot of uh, negotiation to get Maraca Big Pharma to um, to actually make make the vaccines. Eventually, we have now a vaccine for for Ebola with with public money. So you know. But and this is the this is what people don't realize. And I've spoken about this we've uh, with in previous episodes in the podcast, uh, which is about funding. You know, as a scientist myself, I even if I'm passionate about a topic that I see kills millions of people every year, if there isn't any government interest in it, because as you highlighted, universities tend to use public money first as the first port of call um, to fund their research. If there isn't any interest for the topic. And, and this was one of the, the things that frustrated me about uh, 2020 and the pandemic, because there have been people who have been researching pandemics for years, for years. There've been, I, I even, and lastly, I did like my own literature review, not for publishing, just for my own knowledge. There were people researching pandemics and what to do in intensive care, how to plan for um, a pandemic uh, with children and what how that would, because I, from what I could read then, they felt, that the children may be the most affected and how do you mobilize them and the treatment? It was just one of the, the different models. There've been yeah. all these, these bits of research that people are doing, but at the end of the day, pandemic wasn't something that was of interest, you know, or investment mm -hmm. was, was made into. So if you're coming there really passionate and thinking, oh, looking at the trends and seeing where the world is going, we might have a pandemic at some point. Nobody's going to take it seriously because it wasn't a topic of interest that required funding. And of course, now everything is all about COVID related funding, which is another interesting conversation um but yeah. you, know, you know now it's like oh can you pivot your research and and to include covid because that's the only thing that's getting funded at the moment um and yeah. and you know i really like how you highlighted that journey of and it even made it clearer to me as well which is universities getting or you know researchers that are getting funded from public money first and then having to convince industry to some extent that there is a market for this disease state or whatever it is that you're interested in and then is it an attractive market you know because as you said SARS-CoV-1 you know affected people worldwide but it, it I think with SARS-CoV-1 and Ebola and as you highlighted yes there were some cases of people who were affected and then uh, went to America and it was like ah but it just still didn't have the effect that people I think people felt with SARS-CoV-1 and MERS and Ebola that it was a certain kind of person that would get it so it didn't it wasn't made to feel like it's a it would there were conditions or diseases or infections that anybody could get and so therefore it's not our problem you know it's not going to happen to us it's not our problem um and even if you remember you know we're sort of a, a year it was a year ago where the conversations around covid and some people not taking it seriously oh it's just a cough oh nothing it's fine you know there were governments initially who weren't taking it seriously um at all and it's interesting how you know there's a massive turnaround but that's because they realized that covid um doesn't discriminate everybody and anybody can get it it actually reminds me this is a very silly analogy but it reminds me when i was um locuming in a community pharmacy during my phd and um, this uh, somebody came into the pharmacy asking for um she was saying that she's going on holiday or whatever and I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then I said, oh, but you're going to need to get um, 
mosquito like anti-malarials and get some anti uh, in insect repellent spray and everything she said oh no darling I'm going to a five-star hotel that we there won't be mosquitoes there so I said I was like I said so I said no where you're going the mosquitoes don't care if you're in a five-star hotel they'll find you so you're going to need and and it was you know it's even one of the list of countries where you need to um uh, show that you you know you've got to have anti-malaria and everything and I, I do really think that people had that attitude about COVID initially however the difference is and if I can really be callous and, and I hope I'm not offending anyone when I say this but in comparison where certain infections started in countries where quote-unquote they might expect it to happen you know if a disease or infection starts in a remote or well, a certain part of Africa or South America a country South America is a country in Africa people think it's their problem and then COVID came and it started okay I, I still don't know if this is necessarily politically correct to say but the first few cases were highlighted in China and then because nobody was taking it seriously it spread across the world but interestingly enough the part of the world that was hit the most was the quote-unquote unexpected part I still have converse, hear conversations to date I think even a couple of weeks ago where people are like oh I'm so surprised how Covid didn't affect Africa quote-unquote as if Africa is one country um it didn't affect Africa as much you know and, and it's just I'm, I'm probably having a bit of a rant now but it's it's just very interesting and I, I feel like I've personally my eyes have been opened to the inequalities because it's just been so blatant um and then now COVID is a priority for everybody but only because it does actually affect everybody nobody is um safe from it in that sense just because you might stay in a five-star hotel <laughs> doesn't mean that you you know may not be prone it's to it. also because it affects the economy that's yes, what matters yes yes and if you if you remember at the that's beginning we used we, we were watching the scenes from china yes. and you know the lockdown in china the really serious lockdown in china and i remember the, that british prime minister saying well that happens in china but here people value their liberty and their freedom and their whatever and guess what happened after that to us so yeah. i think so yeah, so they just looked at it and didn't take it serious at all. Well, China, you know, SARS was in China, but SARS can spread a little bit and then it's gone. So they thought they really didn't take it serious. Where, what are the countries that took it serious? Look at the infection rate and the death rate, uh, the, the, well, the number of infection and death in countries like New Zealand, Germany, Finland, Iceland, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea and Vietnam. These are the countries and, and also some, some other countries in East Asia. They took it seriously. In East Asia, because they're used, they're used to the time of SARS, they, they immediately, people know that they can, uh, they have to distance themselves from others, you know, wear a mask or whatever. Test and treat. WHO has been saying test and treat and isolate. Um, since, since, since March, last year and still Europe you know few countries in Europe like the ones that I mentioned that they test and treat actually the first test was was in Germany that actually the making of the test um the, U, the US they they wouldn't use the test that that WHO uh, approved and they decided to make their own test and then they had they made a mess of it and it was just a, a, an incredible lack of responsibility 
and it was a Chinese virus and it's staying in China. Well, no, it's not staying in China because viruses don't have don't need passports. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, it's uh, I think I mean to be honest, it's it it's taking a pandemic that we haven't seen before yeah. to make us see or to make decision makers really see one, the huge inequality and the impact of that. Yes, the virus can infect everybody, but the impact of the virus is not equal. So I am lucky I can work from home, but my family back at home, they can't work from home. They can't isolate themselves and work from home because they have to go to work out, outside. And if, if somebody is ill, we don't have the space to actually be isolated. And that's not just in developing countries, by the way, because there are some rich people in developing countries who are living much, much better than me here. But, but it's also here, there are people here in, in rich countries like the UK, where people can't isolate and don't have the luxury of living at home. What we have here, which is good, is that the, you get some government support, some support, while in developing countries you don't, or in many, uh, rather in many developing countries you, you, you don't, so kind of you have to fend for yourself. So there is that inequality. The lack of interest in health service is quite clear. Are decision makers going to invest in public health after this? When we, you know, breathe a sigh and life goes to what they call it normal, are we going to look at climate change seriously? I don't know. Are we look, well actually in the middle of it with not and that's why it kind of I get um I don't have much hope if you like that decision makers or world leaders will learn is that they haven't learned in terms of equity in vaccines and vaccine yeah. distribution. Yeah. So at the moment there is no equity. At the moment there is no uh, they're not addressing the fundamental problem of lack of supply. We don't have enough vaccine. We don't have enough doses. So you have to make enough doses. And they still don't want to address that issue because they want to leave, they don't want to touch any of the pharmaceutical companies' monopoly. So as you know, the government pays for the research and development, they're paying to buy the vaccine and still. They're all they're interested in, like uh, the British want to buy for Britain, the Europeans want to buy for Europe, Canada wants to buy for Canadian citizens. But then you have lots of nice talks about nobody's safe until everybody's safe. I hate this sentence now, actually, because it's so empty. Or vaccine equality or vaccine equity, empty. And then what we've got is from the Prime Minister here last week when he talked about uh, donation and Macron in France also talked about donation. So it's, you know, donation never actually um, sorted out uh, a, a structural problems like access to medicine. However, even if they donate, because they did uh, make agreements to buy lots and lots of vaccines that are far more than needed in any of these countries. But are they going to donate now? So if you are the prime minister of the UK, would you, would you vaccinate the schools so that kids can go to school? Because we have huge mental health problems with 
um, uh, young people here because of the lockdowns and all the changes in the school. Not just young people, <laughs> hand up, yeah, everyone, but, everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, I mean young people about school. So you yes, have this yes. thing of let's vaccinate schools so that kids can go quickly. Um, so would he do that or give the vaccine to, I don't know, health workers in Kenya? Same for France for anybody. France actually is part of the European Union that is having problems of lack of enough supply. They don't have enough supply. So a company that is producing a vaccine, so they can't produce the millions of doses today or in one day. So they will produce bit by bit. Would they give that bit to these rich countries that I already bought and already paid money or they're going to give it to poor countries? So, so we have to avoid that choice. This choice is not the only choice we have. The choice we have is either we live in this situation or we increase supply so everybody can have enough doses. And that's what they don't want. And what are your thoughts? Because what are your thoughts around um, in-country manufacturer? Because I, I think part of the challenge as well, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think one of the, and I, I use, I'm sorry, my reference point is mainly malaria just because that's my area of research. But one of the things that was highlighted in malaria, but I'm just wondering if it's still, it's applicable in general in a wider sense, is that in, in uh, malaria endemic countries, there is not enough in-country manufacture. So everything has to import, be imported. And so, and that again ties into the whole challenge of infrastructure, um, lack of infrastructure, even health systems and all, you know, and all that stuff. So it would, could some of this be solved if instead of the need for donation for, uh, from UK, France, wherever to, uh, you know, other different other countries, but quote unquote, I guess, lower middle income countries or, or developing countries if those countries were able to actually manufacture their own then wouldn't that help because they too are now able to make the vaccine for their own population what are your thoughts on that in-country manufacturing and the challenges does that also add to the inequalities as well okay so in-country manufacturing i mean even in europe not every european country has a huge manufacturing capacity okay um, in North America, America has many companies, Canada has companies, but not to the same extent. So it's not about every country having a big pharma, pharmaceutical company or chain, but it's about having hubs. This will go what's happening now. So the Oxford vaccine, when Oxford did the deal with AstraZeneca, because Oxford wanted non, what they call non-exclusive license, which means that um, basically they license this company AstraZeneca to do the vaccine, but they can also license other companies. However, they were pushed to only give a license to AstraZeneca. So only AstraZeneca can produce the vaccine, the Oxford vaccine. However, Oxford, uh, I think I would say, put it like a condition that AstraZeneca makes the vaccine available to developing countries and that the vaccine is sold at no profit price. And to tie that, Oxford said they're not going to have royalties from the sale during the pandemic. So no profit during the pandemic. So that's why the deal with AstraZeneca was, was better than the others. Now, AstraZeneca, who is not a vaccine company anyway, they went around and, well, 
the UK government built a, a, a plant here in the UK, but they also went around and um, licensed or, or had contracts with other companies. So they have a, a contract with the biggest vaccine manufacturer in India. They have uh, also uh, another um, contract with, Argent with a company in Argentina, with a company in South, in South Korea, um, and I think that some others, these, uh, these are just the main ones. So, so these that tells you that this capacity exists. Mm. Right. Okay. Right. Now, actually, we're doing some, you know, colleagues are doing some research about this, uh, this capacity of companies. Um, so, so we're looking at what will incentivize these companies to enter the, the, the story. They need technology transfer. There is no doubt, particularly for the newest vaccine, because for for COVID, there's some vaccines that never some technologies that was never used before, like the messenger RNA, which is like uh, the, the one that's used by uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and then CureVax is coming coming in. It's not in the market yet. So, so this is new technology. It seems like an easy technology to produce. It doesn't need like a, a, a huge infrastructure to produce it. Uh, so they need they need they need access to the technology and they need not to be bothered about the intellectual property. Mm. So um, you give them that. Not every company, as I said, you know, we talk about companies that have some capacity to produce. There's some companies that can produce the AstraZeneca vaccine, and we've got the Russians are doing are using the same technology that AstraZeneca that Oxford has developed. In fact, Oxford is relying on one um, adenovirus uh, as a carrier. Um, they have a mixture, so it might be, I don't know, more effective. Yeah, because uh, their effectiveness whatever. is like 90 something percent, 95 percent compared to the yeah. Yeah. vaccine. So the there, there is, yeah, so there is capacity or potential capacity in other countries. The other thing that you hear is that, oh, God, no, you know, building a plant and it takes a year. Fine. If we started last um, May, yeah. we would have had one this May. If we start this March, we will have one next March, even if it takes a year. Um, but if we don't start now, next year we'll be having the same conversation. And with next pandemic, we will have or outbreak like Ebola, we will have the same conversation. So it's like, would the world learn that investing, every country, the poorest in the world, mm. would they learn that investing in medical research and in research in general is valuable for their own country? And then some countries at least get together and invest in make the hubs, manufacturing hubs. So I think that the African Union are, are talking seriously about. Uh, but basically, you've got companies in South Africa, um, in Egypt, Morocco, uh, Senegal, Ethiopia, possibly Kenya. So you know, it's it's about. But you need investment. These companies are not going to. Uh, create plants and do production when, and invest in the quality, you know, produce to a high quality and without somebody helping them. So, you know. Yeah, and I think that's... As the... you said, we've got the government here and governments in rich countries helping universities with research. So we need to do that um, in, in, in a collaborative way as well between 
north and south, east and west, south and south, you know, everybody helping so that we have capacity because at the end of the day, capacity is good for everybody. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> No, it definitely. Um, before, because I want to, I want to. This has been oh, this is an amazing conversation. I want to talk a little bit about People's Vaccine Alliance and why it was formed. But beforehand, could you just what is um, vaccine nationalism? Is that what we've been talking about? Vaccine nationalism. What What is that? Well, vaccine nationalism is the when countries basically um, just looked at what they they're vaccinating their population. Right. So the U the UK, you know, they set up this task force for vaccine which did deals with all potential vaccines at the time. So that's paying money and making solid agreement. So the company would know that they will be paid that much for the vaccine. They knew that they can produce a vaccine. And if it didn't work, uh, they wouldn't have to write off the cost. It's the government that writing off the cost. So that's every country did that and basically scooped a hell of a lot of, of, of uh, potential vaccines from, from the market. So once we have the vaccine, they already sold. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very interesting. So could you tell us a little bit about the People's Vaccine Alliance and why it was formed? And also, was it when it was formed? Was it formed specifically because of COVID or, or before that? Yes, it was. It was basically a group of civil society and UNAIDS, the UN um, agency for HIV, um, they kind of got together, they were really frustrated, they could see that there is this, um, uh, that there would be a vaccine and there will be a problem with supply and developing countries might be at the back of the queue. So um, they got together and it's co-led by um, UNAIDS and Oxfam, but it has members like Amnesty International, there's loads of people who are um, experts or advocates or, or academics and there's also loads of NGOs from the north and the south who are part of this alliance and what they after campaigning to have vaccines enough vaccines available for people free at the point of use. <laughs> okay and so and so how is that going <laughs> like what's the progress you know that with uh, People's Vaccine well, Alliance in this agenda? Well, what we're pushing for, we're pushing for sharing technology and sharing intellectual property. The, the, the issue is WHO and Costa Rica and 42 other countries last April launched something called COVID Technology Access Pool, CTAP in short. So this CTAP is actually based on a, 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 another pool called the Medicine Pattern Pool for HIV. So it's based on that. So basically it acts as a one-stop shop where companies like Pfizer or AstraZeneca license their technology and their intellectual property to CTAP and CTAP transfers that license, the, the, IP, the intellectual property and transfers the technology to the other companies that are willing and capable of producing the vaccines. And then, you know, WHO, will, the World Health Organization, will look at the quality issue. So, so we're pushing hard for that. But unfortunately, the, neither rich countries nor pharmaceutical companies are interested in sharing the technology or intellectual property. So we're just keeping pushing um, for, for sharing technology. And um, some of the groups are doing 
um, research on cap the cap capability in developing countries. Um, some people do, you know, doing work on access to vaccine as human rights. Um, and then we're just talking to um, all these policymakers um, to, to, to promote the idea of sharing. Otherwise, we'll just stop. Because, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I got shivers actually when you were saying, you know, trying to convince anybody that this is a good idea that they should share. Surely, and this is where, you know, you have to, rightfully or wrongfully, it's a reminder that it's a business. You know, it's it, it's a reminder that it's a business. I'm there getting upset thinking, oh my gosh, there are people who, who won't have access to these medicines. Think about the lives that will be saved. Just, it's really quite sad and it's quite worrying. But then you realize, hmm, some people, this is somebody's business. So they're thinking, oh, you've got to convince me that this is a good business idea. Because um, my the other reason why I'm really quite interested in this area and, and, and concerned. So I founded uh, the King's College London Fight the Fakes chapter, which is all about challenging um, and advocacy. I'm interested in infections in with that with our campaign. Um, and so, you know, one of the big things is that obviously if we have a gap in the market in countries that also everybody needs the vaccine. So if we have a gap, especially in poorer countries, this opens up the uh, potential of fake medicines and you know illegal mm -hmm. supply chains sorry fake medicines infiltrating supply chains um and so you can have people you know fake covid vaccine which and yeah. and, and it could you know it, the impact that will have in terms of um deaths yeah. really and and whatever other things so you know this is one of the reasons why i'm i i'm con I, I am concerned and i think a lot of people are as to how long can we leave that gap between the countries who have access to the vaccines, the countries who don't have access, because you're increasing the ease for illegal supply of fake medicines or fake COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics to enter into, um, into health systems. Um, I, that's, I, a big, that's, that's a potential problem, of course. Of course, anything expensive or anything unavailable, you will find that uh, nice guys who would make a, a fake one and uh, make a bit of money out of it. Yeah, of course you would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope, and, and so, because one of the uh, things that, you know, I guess, if let's say, for example, the Oxford vaccine gets into a country, um, whatever country, um, that can't make it, it's also making sure that there are ways to just test the validity of what's been uh, what's arriving because it could say oxford vaccine or pfizer vaccine but it could also easily just be the packaging and what's inside could be something fake so uh, you know it's it's anxiety well, that, that's why it's, uh, yeah that's why it has to be publicly delivered publicly yeah. purchased publicly delivered the government has to buy the vaccine so they know what they're buying and they they should be delivering it so as a a user as a an ordinary citizen you know, why should I buy it from the shop when I know I can get it from the government for free, from the government hospital or government health center or whatever? I, I can get it for free. Why should I go and buy it from somebody else? Uh, yeah, and but I think that's... selling it. Yeah. Then, then we'll have the issue of buying it. But you can buy medicines in certain parts of the world. It's not always on prescription. You know, some people, the way in which people obtain and access their medicine is by buying it from a pharmacy, a chemist or another supplier. So 
I think people are already assuming they're going to have to buy the vaccine. And you're completely right here. Nobody's paying for the vaccine. You're getting it as part of the national program. Other parts of the world should be offered the same thing because that and this is where governments can't hoard. They can't, you know, they shouldn't be hoarding the vaccine in, in a, I don't know, in a room somewhere, not giving it to the people. Um, but anyway, Oh, I could talk to you forever about this and I, I <laughs> will definitely have to have you come back. Um, but we're actually coming to the end of the episode and I just have one more, uh, two, three more questions to ask you, but they'll be short questions, don't worry. <laughs> um, so firstly, what challenges, sorry, I guess, sorry, what would you say is the solution to this problem of access to, let's talk specifically about COVID-19 vaccine, access to COVID-19 vaccine globally with no limitations, no inequalities? What would you say is the, is the solution? Increased supply, increased supply. This is like, uh, I, I'm sorry, I keep saying that all the time. You have a small pie and you've got big guys fighting for a big share of the small pie. So it's only crumbs that are going to reach the other guys, basically developing countries. So instead of this fight that is useless, really, what about increasing the size of the pie to the maximum possible by allowing everybody who can produce to produce? Whether it's a company in Europe or a company in Asia or a company in Africa or a company in Latin America, anywhere, if they can produce it, let's do that. Fast tracking also um, the, the uh, approval of the Chinese and the Russian and others. You know, Cuba is investing in the clinical trials on a vaccine, and Cuba has a, a good history of making vaccines actually. So, um, so looking at these others because they also can contribute to the, the, the big pie, if you like. The big pie is not just Pfizer or, or, um, or AstraZeneca, the big pie is everybody. Amazing. Thank you. And so I think that well, that will, and, and then everybody takes the first share, every government takes the first share, and every country uh, uh, prioritizes the at risk people. So the, 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 the vaccine doesn't go to those who can pay, mm. it goes to those who need it. It doesn't go to those who have authority, um, it goes to those who need it. Brilliant. First, at least, and then it can go to other people. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And lastly, what would you say would be the take-home messages? What would be the take-home messages that you'd want our listeners to um, have from everything that we've discussed today? Push your government to, to push pharmaceutical companies to share the technology. Push your government as much as you can. Get questions in Parliament if you, if you have that. Get to the media, uh, anywhere that you can reach, even just by telling people, your neighbor, that our government should push for that. Thanks for joining us this week on the Monday Science Podcast. Make sure to visit our website. Uh, details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show. Uh, so catch up with you next week. Bye.